In Canada, a person goes missing every seven minutes. Of the 71,000 people reported missing each year, about 26,000 of them are adults. The good news is that most of the adults reported missing will be found within a week. About 88% of them will return or be located within that time frame. But what about those who just aren't found? The mothers and fathers, sons and daughters who disappear without a trace. These are the cases that we really need your help to solve. I'm Ellen White, and you are listening to Whereabouts Unknown. Today's episode is the disappearance of May Appleyard. At this time, we would like to warn our listeners that this episode contains graphic depictions of domestic violence. It is not suitable for children or sensitive listeners. So Agnes May Appleyard was born in 1914 in the midst of a cold Canadian winter into a lifetime of hardship. The world was at war and even isolated Perry Township, where the population numbered just in the hundreds at the time, felt the effects. In 1933, May was just 18 when she married a man who listed his occupation on their marriage license as laborer. His name was Arthur Sidney Appleyard, and at the time of their wedding, he was 27 years old. Sid, as he was called, and May married during the Great Depression. The poverty and deprivation that most Canadians experienced may have impacted their rocky start. May, a natural mother and homemaker, quickly added to her growing family a series of children, three of whom would eventually predecease her. We can imagine that the death of two-week-old Evelyn May, just days before May's 24th birthday, must have been a devastating blow to this young mother. Baby Evelyn is said to have had a convulsion and then just stopped breathing. The suddenness of this must have been an incredible shock to the gentle, loving, maternal May, whose life was devoted to the care of the children that she raised, in a small cabin without electricity, running water, or telephone throughout her lifetime. In the years that followed her infant daughter's death, May lost a son to suicide and a teenage daughter to pneumonia. I have no doubt that the teenaged May was filled with the very same hopes and dreams that every young girl has for her future. Sid, nine years older than May, may have seemed worldly and stable, May likely felt protected and loved and a bit swept off her feet during her brief courtship with Sid. Now, we don't know when Sid first turned on May, but we do know this. May Appleyard, just five feet, one inch tall, just over 100 pounds, gentle, timid, and shy, was persistently, systematically, and brutally abused for over a half century by the very person who promised to love, honor, and protect her. And then one day, she was just gone. Ontario Provincial Police officers from four detachments used a canine team and helicopter, and they were joined by 32 local men and women in the search of the swampy and wooded area, about one square kilometer in size, 
that formed the Apple Yard property, just in case May had wandered off and become lost. But no trace of May Appleyard has ever been found. Emsdale and all of Peaceful Perry Township made the front page news when May disappeared. Despite the absence of her body, her husband Sid was charged with second-degree murder. Sid's abuse was well known in the community. His now-grown children knew, and first responders in the area were all too familiar with it. And it seemed a logical assumption that if May was gone, Sid likely had something to do with it. At Sid's murder trial, testimony was given by a paramedic who spoke of responding to a call at the Appleyard residence when Sid had beaten May with a hammer. The doctor spoke of the injuries he had treated her for for over four decades, saying that he had lost track of the number of broken ribs that she had suffered from Sid's abuse. But May, with broken ribs and blackened eyes, hauled water, chopped wood, and prepared creative meals to feed her large family with very few supplies that Sid provided. During the course of our research into May's story, we had a chance to speak with many people from her family and her community, and we heard about how knowledge of the abuse she suffered was widespread and how her neighbors and family tried to help her survive and even to get away. One neighbor spoke of leaving her door unlocked and always having a blanket and pillow on her couch in case May needed to get away from Sid in the dead of night. Another neighbor spoke of waking in the morning on more than one occasion to find May sleeping in her porch, escaping the elements, and most of all, escaping Sid. But the most heartbreaking stories came from May's own family, who spoke of bringing blankets to her on cold winter nights when she ran into the woods, often without taking time to find shoes or a coat to hide. We heard about the time when May hid Sid's alcohol in a boot, knowing that her abuse would be even worse when he was drinking. We heard of how Sid a foot taller and so much stronger than May, grabbed that bottle and smashed it against her head while the young children watched in horror. And we heard many stories of how Sid tortured May by taking his hunting rifle and firing shots at her, both inside the cabin and outdoors. Some of our listeners today may find these stories sadly familiar in their own lives, and they may have an idea of what May was up against. Mentally, physically, and verbally abused, what was May to do? Pack up her many children and flee on foot for miles, as she had never learned how to drive and had no access to a vehicle anyway. May's world was incredibly small, and without telephone or television, she likely didn't even know about the women and children shelters that had started to spring up in the 80s. Sid ensured that she never had access to money, and she was isolated from her extended family. During the first decades of her marriage, May was pregnant 11 times, and was always caring for a house full of small children. We know this with certainty. May loved her children with all her heart, and chose not to run away and leave them behind. She had been beaten so severely and so often that I expect she was very afraid that Sid would harm or even kill her children if she tried to flee. 
During the years that May was married to her abuser, law enforcement often needed a victim to ask to press charges. Officers had some discretion, but knew they had little chance of a conviction if a woman wouldn't provide a statement or testify at a trial. Understandably, victims of domestic violence can be reluctant to do so for many reasons, not the least of which is the fear of retaliation if the offender is not convicted or when they are released. Sadly, it was only in 1986, the very year that May Appleyard disappeared, that a zero-tolerance policy for domestic violence was introduced in Canada, making a criminal charge mandatory in incidents of domestic violence. For May and the one in ten women in Canada who were experiencing abuse at that time, the implementation of that policy seems to have come just too late. Sid being locked away may have given May a chance to reach out and make her getaway, children in tow. But despite that policy, about 100 Canadian women are victims of domestic homicide every single year. And that number just continues to climb. I had the opportunity recently to speak with a brave and amazing woman who was at risk of becoming part of that homicide statistic. We are using an assumed name for her today because her former partner brutalized her and her children for years, and he's still out there. The woman that we'll call Megan shared with me why she stayed and how she eventually got away. I I think there's a few reasons when you look on an emotional level, you know, you're in love with this person and abusive partners tend to find their victim or their partners that are very empathetic, um, very kind hearted, always wanting to see the best in people to um, not wanting, you know, in wanting confrontation that seems to be that's the kind of person that I am and um so I always wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt that he lost his temper but he really didn't mean it because of course he would apologize right and he would try to do everything to make it better for a short period of time and um I learned that cycle of abuse where it's the honeymoon phase right where they try to make it better um to be honest I came from a childhood and I think this might play in for some people's situations I came from a childhood um where my parents stayed together for a very long time even though they weren't happy um you know and um I came from a childhood where you got spanked and where um you got smacked and you got screamed and yelled at when you did something wrong and I know our society has progressed in so many ways and we've learned so many better ways to communicate um but for some people that transfers over to the way they raise their children so for me the explanation that his father was abusive to him and then you know when he hits that point he didn't have any other resources this is all he knew seemed to be an ex um, a reasonable explanation at the time. So those are some of the emotional reasons why um, there were so many more. There's financial. I mean, it got to a point, like I said, where I didn't have money 
anymore. I wasn't going to work. Um, I didn't have any money coming in, at least not enough that I could squirrel some away or save um, enough to get away. Um, I'd not been working for over a year, so now that it's going to be more difficult for me to find a job, especially when you have to pay childcare for four kids and you've been out of the workplace for so long. Um, I mean, at the end, he had me so isolated that I had no phone, I had no car. Um, a lot of my friends, um, I was isolated even from my friends you know, where he'd either made it out like I was crazy and going through something postpartum or, you know, um, or that I was just very um, ungrateful. That look at this beautiful house and look at all these beautiful things we have and she's still not happy. She still wants more. Um, when that wasn't the case at all, the lavish clothes, the cars, the house that I had was his purchases that he had made to woo me in. Right. But that's not, um, those weren't my core values that those weren't things that I, I needed to keep me there. Right. Um, but he had people believe that I was so ungrateful. Look at everything that he's done for me. And I'm just basically a whining, crying, um, you know, not grateful spouse. Yeah, of course. It's very difficult when somebody discredits us and, and, you know, we feel like we have no support. It can make it even more difficult to break away. So around all of that, were you afraid of what might happen to you or what he might do to you or to your children if you did leave? Oh, absolutely. He threatened me multiple times. So he threatened to take my kids and I'd never see them again. Um, he threatened to... This is going to sound really off the wall to people because, um, but I'm, I'm just going to say it because it was my reality at, at one point. He collected large, like samurai, like samurai swords, like big swords. Oh. And uh, he would threaten to chop us up with them. And he threatened that if I ever left or if he ever found out that I was ever talking to another male or um, entertaining anybody else's attention that he would slice my head off and put it on a stake and put it on the front lawn for everybody to see what kind of woman I was. So there were, and it sounds crazy. It sounds like it's out of some horror movie, but when you're told that you have four kids and all this baggage and who's going to want you and um you know you're devalued and you're pushed around he used to push me around he used to um shove my face into like the sofa so I couldn't breathe to the point where I thought I was you know um gonna suffocate um just he did other things that when you you see the escalation of the physicality when he makes threats about on your life like that you start to believe it you know yeah, because you didn't you didn't think the physical that he was doing to you now or to your children was ever possible so 
I didn't think that he was ever going to be capable of that, or that was ever going to be possible or ever going to be my reality. Then the next thing he says, why wouldn't that become my reality as well? Yeah, of course. I have absolutely no doubt that he would be very convincing and that you had every reason to fear for your safety. Yet you got away. And I understand that you went to a shelter. um, I did. With your kids. And um, we are so happy to really be talking to you today. And and certainly not about this this very sad and distressing time. But we are just really glad that you are here today. Because so many women who have found themselves in very similar situations are not, or their children are not. So we are so glad that despite the six years of horrific abuse, you made it to a place of safety with some help from the community. And if you were, if we were to ask you to give some suggestions, if a person listening to this podcast is in a similar situation today, um, what's a quick and simple list for them to consider about how they might get away and how they might save their lives? Um, definitely contact your nearest women's shelter because they will listen and they do believe you. So if you don't have someone in your life that you feel you can trust or that will believe you, they will believe you. And also to take that step, if it's if you feel it, to trust your instincts, if you feel it's getting bad, bad, everybody's rock bottom, everybody's situation is different. So if you're at your your most weakest, most level and you can't possibly tolerate anymore, you need to listen to yourself. And so whether that's reaching out to a family member you trust or a friend. And if you don't feel like you can trust that, there are women and children's shelters all over, all over, and and they will help. When May Appleyard disappeared in April 1986 from her family home in Emsdale, Ontario, many people in the community, the police, and the Crown Attorney reached the conclusion that 80-year-old Sydney had killed her, and he was charged with her murder. Many people felt that it had only been a matter of time before this happened anyway. May's one and only purse was found empty in the wood bin on the property. A quilt was taken by police from the bed she shared with Sid, and it appeared to have traces of blood on it. And a large tuft of hair, believed to have belonged to May Appleyard, was found in their front yard. May, who had never traveled more than five kilometers from her home and from her family, was nowhere to be found. After a week-long jury trial, Sid was acquitted of the charge of second-degree murder after just 45 minutes of deliberation. Juries often find reasonable doubt when a body is absent and May's body has never been found. And Sid's defense attorney introduced the idea that perhaps May was alive and well and living in British Columbia, a place she'd never been to and where she knew no one. How May might have made it there without money, without transportation, and without anyone knowing was never explained. We've received a number of tips suggesting that another relative and his wife, who had been abusive to both May and Sid, might have been responsible for her death 
or at least for assisting the elderly Sid in disposing of her body. We received tips as well that a friend of this couple may have also been involved. This couple and their friend are now deceased. We looked into any records or information that would indicate that May had escaped to British Columbia, as Sid's lawyer suggested, but we were unable to find anything at all to support that theory. But Sid made some telling comments after his wife's disappearance that further support what our team feels. Arthur Sidney Appleyard is the person who was responsible for May Appleyard's disappearance and death. After her disappearance, a human skull, which doesn't seem to be related to this case and likely came from an old burial ground nearby, was discovered near the old Appleyard property. When police told Sid about the skull's discovery, his immediate response was, did it have a bullet hole in it? And sadly and horribly, when one of Sid's own children said, Dad, where is Mom? Sid smirked and said, you'll never find her. Sid also commented about May's death to other family members, saying, I guess I killed her, and I fooled them when the police search failed to find her. In recent weeks, we received tips about two possible burial sites that were previously unknown to the family, and we have forwarded those tips to the police. Our wish for the Appleyard family is that May's remains will one day be recovered and buried with the children that she lost. Here is our interview with May's granddaughter, Darla. You know, we talked a bit, you and I, about closure. And what does closure look like to your family? What information would you like to see come out of this case? Um, a lot of peace for the family. It's... It's been hard on all of us, um, especially my siblings that have been really close with her. And seeing my mom have that smile of relief, just having the answers because she deserves that. That's her. If it was my mom, I would fight tooth and nail to find answers. And finally getting this help, it's, it's relief, relief. Yeah, my goodness. Again, as I was saying, it has been a whole lot of years and, and we know firsthand how families struggle when a beloved family member just disappears. You had said something really important to me in a recent conversation that, that stuck with me and has stuck with our team. And you had said that given that your grandmother is not here any longer, it was really important to you to be her voice. And we really appreciate that. Women who have come from situations of domestic violence are silenced all too often. That you, you know, generations later are coming forward to speak on your grandmother's behalf. Thank so you. listen, if your grandmother today, what would you like to say to her? I love you and thank you for giving me my mom. Yeah, we know with the many, many tipsters who've come forward to talk about your grandmother's case, how much she loved her children and how much she loved her grandchildren. She, she loved any, everybody. That woman had a heart of gold. We've heard so many positive stories, and I was sharing some of them with you about 
how your grandmother, you know, even with everything she was going through and even with the tremendous losses that she'd suffered and the abuse that she was dealing with on a daily basis, always kept candies in her pockets for kids in the neighborhood and how she was always happy to share with everyone around her everything that she had and to make their lives easier and simpler. If you are experiencing domestic violence, please call the Assaulted Woman's Helpline at 1-866-863-0511 or visit awhl.org. We recommend that after calling or visiting the site online, you delete the information from your phone or browser. We recognize that women are especially vulnerable when they are planning to leave or have just left an abuser, and it is wise to take all precautions and not leave information where it might be seen by anyone else. If you are in danger, please immediately call 911. If you are a concerned friend, family member, or neighbor who suspects that someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, we will be posting information for you on our Facebook page about resources that can help you best help them. And please share May's story. She was silenced by abuse for decades before she was finally silenced in death. But you can be her voice. If you have any information about the disappearance of May Appleyard, please send us a private and confidential message on our Facebook page or call Crime Stoppers. I'm Ellen White, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Whereabouts Unknown. Thank you.